0: good morning, Redemption Arcadia. Welcome. So glad that you're here today. And those of us, uh, those of you that are catching us online as well, we appreciate you joining us. We're going to worship the Lord this morning and invite you to stand as we do. We also want to proclaim God's greatness. And so we want to read together this proclamation out of First Chronicles 27. And so let's read this together. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Amen.
1: I want to be
0: He is great and we are not. And so we want to confess our brokenness to him this morning. Let's read this out of Psalm 32. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Fall here in your church and in our lives. And Lord, may your name be great to the ends of the earth. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for worshiping. Would you remain standing as our scripture reader comes to read our scripture this morning?
2: Brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there is much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled. man on Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is the word of the Lord, you may be seated.
3: Okay, thank you, Ellie, for the reading. Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. Do y'all know Trey Fraley? Good good morning. Do you all know me? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Uh, I am Frank Switzer. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church Arcadia. If you're new, we're glad that you are here. We've been going through the book of John. Um, And today we decided we're going to have a little dueling preaching with uh, Trey and myself. We did this once last fall. Uh, It was really fun. People responded well, thought they got a lot out of it. And this particular section of scripture is something that Trey and I have talked a lot about, and I realize that Trey has a lot to say about this, that, uh, not just a lot to say, but a lot of insight uh, to this passage, and so I wanted him to be able to share that with you. but. Um, and don't worry, he's going to preach all by himself again someday. The, prob- the problem is, <laughs> the last time he preached by himself, we had to shut down the church for several months, if you remember that. It was sure. on March 8th the last time he preached. So uh, anyway, he's, he's going to preach uh, by himself again, don't worry. But uh, we've been having some fun being able to do it this way. And, and so we thought we'd uh, do it this way again. We have studied very hard, but uh, we want to just have a conversation about this passage going paragraph by paragraph. Uh, but before we get there, I want to. I want uh, a little incongruency here. I have two things that I that I feel it, really important to mention. First of all, at the end of the sermons recently, uh, when we introduce communion, which is very important, uh, I I have failed to uh, remind people that we are. Uh, Available for prayer again. We're standing in the wings. We have elders and we have two new elders. Both of them are in Prescott this weekend, which is odd. But um, so many, a bunch of people left town this week for Prescott. They heard there was snow up there and they, it's like, we got to go see snow. Okay. So uh, anyway, they're up there. But we do have elders, we have deacons, we have staff and pastors who. Stand in the wings. If you need prayer during uh, during the communion time or after the service, whether I mention it or not, we are available for prayer. That's one thing. Uh, here's the other thing. Uh, I, uh, the first Sunday of every year, I I do that list of books that I think are important. And I just finished a book uh, this last week, and I don't. I I think it, the book is too important to wait until. Uh, 2022 to tell you that you need to be reading this, especially if you have children, especially if you have children, you need to read, whatever you're reading right now, my opinion is that you need to just, you either should finish it quickly and move on to this book or you should drop it and get this book and read it. And it's a a book by a woman named Abigail Schreier uh, and, and the book is Irreversible Damage. And uh, she is making the case of what the transgender craze is doing to our daughters. And um, it's, uh, it's a very well-researched book. It's fascinating. Um, she is putting things in perspective in terms of there are truly gender dysphoric people out there, a very small minority uh, who are truly dysphoric, but this has actually become a thing or a fad uh, with uh, with teenage girls, so uh, teenage girls who are not at all dysphoric are deciding to go forward with transition in terms of hormones and even surgery. And uh, it's th- there's this thing called affirmation therapy, where all the, a 12 year old can walk into a psychologist or a psychiatrist and say, "I'm I'm a man trapped in a girl's body." and Boom, no question, that's it. Self-diagnosis, we're cool with that, and let's move forward with this. It's, it's pretty stunning, and this is the next huge thing that's going to be coming, and you need to be aware of it. The irony about this book is uh, right away in a Christian context when a pastor recommends a book, uh, th- the thought for a lot of people is, oh, well, this is some right-wing Christian nut job who wrote this book, and Abigail Schreier is the furthest thing from that. Uh, she is considerably left of center politically and would affirm uh, a lot of things that scripture would not affirm, but apparently this transgender craze has gone just a little bit too far. And she has now written this book in an effort to try to uh, educate parents uh, about what's happening. And she has, it has cost her a tremendous amount in the marketplace as a journalist uh, even to have written this book. So uh, I highly recommend the book. And if you read it and you want to talk a little bit more about it, I'd be happy to uh, engage you on that. So it's called Irreversible Damage, Abigail Schreier, S-H-R-I-E-R. Okay, so uh, we're looking at uh, John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24, kind of a continuation from chapter 6. And of course, we're going to talk a lot about this going forward with the sermons in coming weeks. But... Chapter 7 just flows right into chapter 8. And there are so many things that are sort of repeated and themes keep coming up. But at any rate, it's, uh, it's just interesting how this narrative keeps going. We've seen Jesus feed the 5,000 and walk on water. The people followed him who got fed uh, the bread and the fish. They followed him across the sea. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And then, of course, he says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood... Um, That's what you need to do in order to to be saved. And people freaked out. Even his disciples pushed back. So um, you had some introductory comments to this specific passage that Ellie just read. So let's talk a little bit about it. Well,
4: amazing job, Ellie, by the way. That was a long passage to read.
3: Yeah, we we asked, we said, this is one of the longest passages we're ever going to read. So uh, why don't you get somebody brand new and really initiate them well? So. (laughs) first time reading. She did great. Um, So yeah,
4: this is one of those times in scripture that makes me think back to like movies where something big just happened, something big is about to happen and it's almost like there's just this character development that has been written in and it's not necessarily like this vital shocking part of the story but it seems like upon like uh, superficial reading that it might be just kind of character development, kind of filling in the gaps between Jesus saying some statement that people thought was the most absurd thing they had heard. And that he's left with the twelve. They've, now all these disciples have left. And then it picks up this story that kind of connects him to being in Jerusalem. And it, you, would, you could think upon just reading this, okay, this is just connecting the dots. But once you get a little bit deeper, it's super exciting. This turns out to be one of the most shocking parts of John in that he's trying to wake the people up that he's writing this gospel to, the, early, the first uh, century church, and he writes some things in here that to them would have grabbed their attention. Yes. It would have been shocking. It would have been uh, jarring to them.
3: Yeah, um, it, it, And I, I love the way you put that. That's an interesting way of putting it, that it's, um, it's like a movie where there's character development, but this character development is so important for understanding things going forward. And the other thing is... It, doesn't it just feel sort of subtle the way John introduces the fact that Jesus' brothers are around now and, and there's this conversation with his brothers in that first paragraph?
4: Yeah. Oh, I have some
3: thoughts on that, too. Okay. I mean, All right. Well, are you ready for me to read the first please, paragraph? Please, And I'm going to read the first. We're going to read the, each paragraph, if there's three of them, and then sort of talk about it. Probably the middle paragraph we'll spend the least amount of time on. Not that it isn't important, but it's the shortest. But as you said, there's a lot in, in, uh, in this passage here. So, And there's two of us talking about it, so we'll be here for, what, about an hour and a half, I guess. So okay. <laughs> so here's this first paragraph. And I'm going to stop a couple places and just explain some context, and then we'll talk about it. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. So he's still up north. He's not in Jerusalem yet. Uh, he would not go about in Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Um, that hadn't been quite as overt as we know it is just yet, but Jesus knew that, it's going to get pretty overt oh, yeah. in these coming chapters that the Jews are seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. Now, let me stop there and explain that. What's a Feast of Booths? For those who don't know, um, the, the Jewish traditions had several of these feasts every year. And the Feast of Booths was the most important feast or festival of the fall season. Uh, it lasted seven or eight days. It was considered a pilgrimage festival. In other words, wherever you lived in the world, if you were Jewish, you had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and stay there for the entirety of the, entire, uh, of the, of the festival, all seven or eight days. You were required to do that if you were a good Jewish uh, person. Uh, the Feast of Booths celebrated two things. It's a a celebration on two different levels. Uh, It was in the fall, so it was first of all celebrating the end of the agricultural harvest season. So they would plant during the winter and early spring. They would harvest through the summer and the fall. And towards the uh, middle of fall, so somewhere around in October, that would be the end of the harvest season. The last Crops to come in were usually grapes and olives. A couple of other grains would come in, but by then most of the grains would come in. And so they would use this uh, festival to celebrate the harvest that God had provided uh, for them. Whether it was good or bad, they would still celebrate it. This was an important uh, festival. Uh, Think about it this way. We have holidays that we hold very dear that we treasure some of us love the fourth of july and it's a big deal we're always in a small midwest town for the fourth of july and so there's always a small midwest town parade that we love it's really cheesy and we love it Uh, some of us love uh saint patrick's day can i get an amen so um we love that and it's a big build up and all that christmas is a big one uh it just depends thanksgiving it just depends this was this was like that for them and so they spent a lot of time there. They had all these traditions and rites that we're going to spend the next several weeks uh, unpacking and looking at that Jesus keeps uh, referencing. And, and so everybody is on their way to the, this Feast of Booths. So they're celebrating uh, the agricultural year. Uh, that's one part of the celebration. The other part, the, way, the reason it's layered, the other part of the celebration is that they are also looking back to the exodus. Now I keep mentioning how the Exodus and Moses keep coming up in the Gospel of John and here it is again, the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, is looking back at the Exodus and how when they were wandering in the wilderness, God protected them and provided for them and they would live in these little booths or these little tabernacles. And so they were also memorializing the Exodus and they were lifting up Moses as their prophet. And so there was a historical component to it as well as the contemporary uh, component to it. And um, even contemporarily in the first century, what they would do during the last part of that harvest season to help lead up to the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles is they would go out into their fields where they were harvesting and they would build these temporary leafy booths and some of them would actually live in them and sleep in them uh, at night as part of the celebration and so this is a big deal. Uh, like I said it's a pilgrimage uh, festival. There were also two pilgrimage festivals in the spring which was must have been really hard. You had to go come back, go and come back. but those were Passover and Pentecost were also pilgrimage festivals. And so because it was a pilgrimage festival, if you were Jewish, you kind of had to go to Jerusalem. So, that's an important backdrop for this because at one point we read where Jesus says, no, nah, I'm not going to go. And then it says, yeah, I'm going to go, but I'm going to go privately. I'm going to go in secret. And then suddenly he says, I think I'm going to go and teach in the temple. So the whole private thing is off then. So there's this weird progression too mm-hmm. uh, that I think is important to the passage. So, so he said, uh, uh, so the, 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 the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, so now his brothers are here. This is James and Jude and others, okay? And they said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works or does those kind of miracles and signs in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, uh, show yourself to the world. And then this kind of editorial comment by John, for not even, not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to his brothers, my time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. That is a clear and stern rebuke of his brothers. If this is a happy family gathering, it just got <laughs> tense and awkward. Okay, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. In other words, I don't want to get up, go up there and, and end up being arrested and executed before my time comes. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So what's going on oh in my this period? I already talked a lot about this. No, paragraph. yeah. What's going on
4: in this Well, paragraph? so it, I feel like this is kind of like John spiritually flexing. So God is writing this, this part of passage that we, we, we should be hearing and I think it's good for our hearts. Um, But he kind of name drops casually, James. He says, oh yeah, and Jesus' brothers were there. The First Century Church, the people reading this knew James. He wrote James. By this
3: time, they knew who James was. Very famous guy.
4: um, Their ears are perking up and they're like, James didn't believe. But James wrote about faith and about proving your faith by your works. They're like, this guy is an expert on faith. And he didn't believe? And so it's almost like John is is trying to... um, Grab at people's attention and say, "Wake up! There's something here that even even the wise James needed to learn. There's something here that even me, even I have that I want every bit of it in me to be ridded of myself." And then it goes into that. And because they didn't believe, they kind of give this uh, advice. And I mean, and you you had thought that it. I have a, yeah. we, we think a little bit differently. We have
3: a different opinion about uh, what the brothers were trying to do with Jesus. Why they were trying to goad him into going down to Jerusalem. Yeah. So this is kind of this is a point of interpretation. Uh, I don't think both of us are right. Um, and it's possible that neither of us are right, but one of us is right. It's probable that one of us is right, one of us is wrong. It doesn't really matter, but it's kind of interesting, so you have to listen to it since you're here anyway. So, but Why do you think the brothers were doing this to Jesus? Why do you think they wanted him to go down?
4: Yeah, so it seems like this, this like, really sound advice, if you read it without any type of um, inflection or like, oh, they, you know, they must have been meeting something pointed, it seems like, oh, this is really great campaign advice. Like, if you want to be famous go and show yourself, let them see the crazy things that you do. And I mean, that makes sense to me.
3: And you're going to build your mega church. You're going to have this big following. Yeah. It'll be awesome, right?
4: Yeah. And the one thing they're leaving out is, oh, and also I'm going to be with you. And all these people who are looking at you and giving you praise and talking to you. I'm going to be right it. That's my brother. I just, this is my guy. And so, so they're so going should... to get this vicarious, like, um,
3: so he believes, he believes the brothers are doing this because they are motivated by fame, by association. Yes. Right? Yeah.
4: So yeah. they, they want to be
3: around when Jesus gets his props.
4: Totally. They're going to take their selfies with Jesus and be like, hey, we're here at the pool of Siloam. Check it out.
3: Yeah? Yeah. So Trey is young and optimistic <laughs> and wide-eyed. I'm old and cynical and... So my take on this is, and the reason my take on this is because there is, I think, a little hint in the text. Trey's probably right, but I think there's a hint. that that John added that editorial comment because his brothers didn't believe in him. I think the brothers are goading Jesus into going down there because they figure sooner or later he's going to fall on his face. And they're going to be able to laugh at him. They're, They're kind of angry. This guy they grew up with now is suddenly this famous person who's doing these works. So there may be a little bit of jealousy there. They, may, maybe don't, they don't believe in him. And so maybe they want him to go down there because they figure sooner or later he's going to fall on his face. And they're going to be able to kind of dance on his grave, so to speak. So uh, who knows? The point is, is that they want him to go down there. They're goading him into going down there. And Jesus says, I'm not going. So why does Jesus tell them he's not going, yet he goes later? Why do you think that is?
4: Well, I think him saying that he's not going down there. I mean, And then that sentence when he says, um,
3: you, you go up
4: to the feast. I'm not going because it's not my time yet. Yeah. So he didn't say, I'm not going to go. He said, I'm not going because it's not my time yet. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, I'm not going with you. I'm not going the way that you want me to go. I'm not go- and, yes. and a huge part of that, too... Is whether your take on that specific couple verses is the way that this was written or my take is, doesn't matter. Both reign true that they weren't trying to exalt God with that advice that they were giving
3: to This him. is the biggest point, right? They here.
4: were trying to exalt themselves. Whether it was a joke at bringing someone down or it was at lifting themselves up by this vicarious praise, they're trying to exalt themselves and not exalt God. Which, which in this pa- in this passage, all three of these, these paragraphs have this huge battle between a heart of faith and a heart of pride. And they can't exist together. You can't feed both a heart of faith and a heart of pride. You can only feed one of them. But if you feed this heart of pride, it's going to look like exalting yourself or bringing others down. And so it's in this first paragraph, it seems as though these, these brothers are are doing exactly that they're trying to exalt themselves and they're telling jesus to go and jesus saying i'm not going to go in the way that's going to exalt myself to the world in that way
3: i he's saying i'm not going to go according to your agenda i'm going to go according to my agenda yeah there's a there's a different way to go i so i think what trey said here is just money if you're a note taker this is this is where you should be writing stuff down Um, When Trey and I had this conversation, I had two thoughts. I said, Trey and I can either do this together, or I can just steal it from Trey and take all the credit for it.
2: So I decided (laughs) to have
3: Trey come up here. Uh, The two things he said, you got to hear this. Uh, No matter what the brothers were doing, it was about self-exaltation rather than the exaltation of God. That's a problem. Uh, And then the second thing that Trey said is, I, I just have never thought about it, in this it's so simple but so true faith and pride cannot coexist that's a huge deal yeah and th- and then and then you have this you also have this accusation that Jesus makes in there where he says the world can't hate you but the world hates me mm-hmm. what is what does Jesus mean when he says to his brothers the world can't hate you it, that sounds like it would be good news in some respects, right? The world can't hate you. Okay. Oh, good. I'm glad the world doesn't hate me. The world loves me, but the world hates me, but it's not. So, no. Talk a little bit about that.
4: Well, yeah, I think um, this people know people who are like them. When, when you're similar to me, I can, you smell like me, you look like me, you act like me, and I can pick that up. And you know what? We all, humans, love to make our affinity groups. And when we see people who are like us, we gravitate towards them. That's just true about human society. That's what humans do. Um, And I think marred by our sin, we take that to a sinful extent. And right here, what's happening is Jesus is saying, you're you're gravitating towards the world. The world is going to recognize you as its own. You're living for self-exaltation. You're living at a heart of pride. That's what the world does. But if you try to exalt God, you will not be popular. But what you're doing right now is exalting yourself. So, of course, go by all means, do this, and, and
3: the world's going to love you. So in, in kind of like in social media lingo, Jesus' brothers are the ones that are on their way to becoming influencers because they're going to have followers, mm-hmm. and they're going to be able to monetize their following.
4: Yeah, hey guys, Jesus, like and subscribe.
3: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Jesus is no, he's going to be like me when I was on Twitter. Six and a half followers and that's it, okay? <laughs> if I get three likes, I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited, you know? Um, and so that's what's happening. He's, he's saying, you, you are of the world. And yeah. so the world loves you, but that's going to be your downfall, just like it is anybody else's. Yeah. It's another way of Jesus saying what he's already been saying and what he's going to say in coming chapters. All right, let's move to that next let's do it. middle paragraph. So here you go. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So he's trying to hide the fact that he's at the festival. Uh, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. So whether he's there or not, Jesus is actually the one who's getting all the scuttlebutt. He's the one that people are interested in seeing because they've at least heard about him or they have already seen him in some way, shape, or form. And while some said he is a good man, others said no, he's leading people astray. Can you believe that Jesus causes division among some people because of their opinion of him? Hmm. That's just amazing (laughs) to me. Glad that doesn't happen today. Um, And then 13. Here you go. This is the key. Sentence to this, pa- this paragraph, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of it. Hmm. For fear of the Jews. So the first paragraph in part, and one of the big themes in the first paragraph is that the brothers really want the affirmation of man, meaning humanity. They want yeah. the affirmation of the world, the affirmation of man, okay? and And when I say the affirmation of the world, the the way the word world is used in this passage here, uh, the way Jesus uses the word uh, world is to talk about the sinful corruption that inhabits human beings, which then, because uh, human beings are all part of worldly systems, it's the sinful corruption that then also inhabits all of the worldly systems. It inhabits all of the religious systems. It inhabits all of the governmental systems it inhabits all of the academic systems it inhabits your homeowners association system can I get an amen (laughs) it it inhabits everything so what he's saying is you can be a part of that world but understand it's going to be under the influence of corruption and sin and what I'm trying to do is come here and to redeem that to restore what was original so that first paragraph is about the affirmation of man This second paragraph is also about the affirmation of man. It's just stated in a different way. But for fear of the Jews, but for fear of the world, they didn't talk about Jesus. So talk a little bit about that.
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of, um, you think about, I always think the way that, I mean, naturally my job revolves around kids, so it makes sense. But um, I think about the way that kids interact. And um, you can see how they're in the heart of every person is this, this battle between this faith and this, this pride, who, all of us who are in Christ. And this, this pride causes us to want to put others down so that it might bring us up. And we see that a lot with kids. But there's also this fear of being put down. Yes. And so I'll do whatever I can to not be put down. And it's serving that same, that same heart of wanting to be exalted. As long as you don't put me down. As long as you can lift me up. It's that same heart, again, like just like you said, said a different way. Still trying to exalt yourself, and so I'm not going to talk about it openly because, well, I'm going to lose my place among my people. I'm not going to be you know, um, credited anymore. I'm going to lose my influence yeah. because these guys are going to totally make fun of me if I side with Jesus.
3: Yeah, so um, I, I do have some notes here because I couldn't remember all of this, but I just, I just changed the wording a little bit of that idea, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Yet for fear of the highly educated academics in our context. Yet for fear of the culture. Yet for fear of the social media mob. Yet for fear of the enlightened among us. Yet for fear of the woke. Yet for fear of getting canceled. Yet for fear of being mocked by coworkers, yet for fear of losing the promotion, yet for fear of a brawl at the family Thanksgiving dinner, yet for fear of not being tolerated by those who preach tolerance. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying that those fears aren't real and that those fears shouldn't be a part of the way we calculate how we're going to interact with people. But what I am saying is that sooner or later, all of us who are believers in Jesus, there's going to come a time when we have to stand firm and we have to say, I stand with Jesus and Jesus stands with me. And it's going to cost us something. Hmm. It will cost us something. So last paragraph. I'm trying to watch time here. Oh, good. We have another 45 minutes. Okay, so uh, 14 through 24, about the middle of the feast, Jesus. So he's gone from not going to going privately and quietly to now he's going to go into the temple and begin teaching. That's going to draw all kinds of attention to him. So he goes to the temple and begins teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying... How is this man, how does it is it that this man has so much learning when he's never studied? See, Jesus never went to any of their Hebrew schools, never went through the Pharisaical schools, none of that stuff, but he's confounding them with his incredible teaching. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Well, it's not mine, it's, it's Yahweh's. That's why it's good. It's not my teaching. If anyone's will is to do God's will he will know whether the teaching is from God or, from, or, or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who, who uh, sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. And then he kind of changes the subject, but it's important. Has not Moses given you the lie? None, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, this is a wonderful answer. It's a wonderful debate tactic. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. You're just paranoid. You must be nuts, okay? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled at it. What's the work that they're referencing there?
4: They're all, I mean, whether it's the food, right here they're talking about the food. And then later he talks about healing this man.
3: Yeah, so from chapter 5, there was that healing mm-hmm. of, of the man who was lame for 40 years, right? 40 years, Couldn't yeah. walk for 40 years. So he's looking back at that. Uh, and so he says, Moses gave you circumcision. Not, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. In other words, Abraham, which means yes. it's from God, okay? Uh, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you are you angry at me because... On the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Uh, So that first part that we're looking at is this idea of uh, teaching from God with God's authority or teaching from man with man's authority. Let me start this one. Go ahead, yeah. Uh, And I'll just, it's just a time of confession. I don't think there's any pastor who doesn't go through this. Uh, not because I went through it, that means every pastor has gone through it, but because I've read so many books about it. There There is a level of power and status and gravitas that a pastor has because they can get up on Sunday mornings and they can teach God's Word. And especially within a context like ours today where... In many places, it's not enough just to really teach God's God's word well, but you also have to be able to entertain. You have to be winsome. You have to be funny. Uh, You have to keep people engaged with sometimes even just sort of cheesy tricks. And if you're good at it, there comes a notoriety. There comes people offering to help you publish a book. I can't, you know, Tom Schrader, our lead pastor, he never published a book. But that doesn't indicate how many times publishers came to him and begged him to write a book because of that power and influence. And with that power and influence and status and gravitas, you know, you begin to read your own press releases. And you begin to, you begin to fall into that trap of believing that you have a certain level of authority that, is, that has nothing to do with God's authority. And it is the greatest impediment To ministry that there is, it is the pride of your own senior pastor, which must be kept under control somehow. That's one of the reasons why we have elders. Hopefully they can help do that. That's another reason why pastors need to be glued to the word and the word needs to be speaking to them so that the pastor understands that the authority that they're speaking under does not come from them but comes from God because the minute the authority starts coming from them, that's when things go sideways. Can I get an amen? It should have been stronger, but okay. At least you're with me, okay? (laughs) Now talk about this, but but here you go. I I forgot this one last connection. Is that not the approval and the affirmation of the world that the pastor is looking for rather than the approval of God? Yes. Okay, so go ahead.
4: Um, Great point. Okay. Have you done this before? (laughs) Trying. Um, So I think before we get to Jesus' teaching, there's the element of like, what is going on with him saying, okay, I'm not going up yet. And then he doesn't go up publicly like his brother said to. Mm -hmm. And then instead he goes up privately, humbly. And then he teaches in the sin. But what does he teach? And I think, they'll I mean, if you want to just boil this down, he says, if you try to seek your own glory, then you're, you're foolish. He says, anyone who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But, but what's the thing that we should be doing? The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him, who sent Jesus? The Father. God the Father. Whoever seeks God. the Father's glory, he is true. So he just defines something in his teaching. What makes you true? So many people are obsessed with what is true. Oh, there's no such thing as tr- truth is such a weird It's my truth. It, and you have this truth of relativism and all this stuff. And Jesus sits here and says, here's the definition of what makes you true. And it's if you seek the glory of God, that's what makes you true. Because you cannot seek your own exaltation if you're seeking the glory of God. Because it doesn't work that way. It takes faith for you to seek. See how that comes back in? It takes faith for you to seek God's glory. And that pride wants us to seek our own. So Jesus teaches this, but it's funny. Before he ever taught with words, he did it in action.
3: That's right.
4: He didn't go up trying to get all these disciples he just lost because he said something about, hey, eat my flesh and drink my blood. But wait, I've got to get all my disciples and my peeps before I go walk into Jerusalem. He didn't do that. He went up privately. He didn't go up with his posse. He just went up and then started teaching in the synagogue the temple what he did in action which is funny because this is a huge lesson about who Jesus is and it should be a lesson for us. Jesus is always willing to take his own medicine. here he takes it and he takes it when he goes up to the cross not exalting himself but exalting
3: God. And one of the things I think he's doing here is he's talking to the, the, he's talking to the crowd but there also there's a lot of pro, the religious professional leaders there and teachers. And he's saying to them, you guys, a lot of you guys are teaching with the wrong motivation. You're teaching f- for the motivation of the approval of the world. Yeah. And we know the world is sinful and, and corrupt. There's a, uh, You all know Morgan Freeman? He's a pretty good actor. Um, he, he had a movie a long time ago. It's a very dark movie, uh, but very, very theological. I can't recommend the movie, but it's extraordinarily theological. The last line in the movie is uh, his character, uh, Morgan Freeman's character, saying, this last line of the movie, and it was a dark, awful movie about sin and and everything, and he said this, Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. And then he said, I agree with the second part. Now now here's what, sometimes Hollywood actually gets this stuff right, okay? (laughs) Here's what he was saying. He wasn't saying, I think we should fight for the world, although that's not a bad thing. Jesus did say on earth as it is in heaven in his prayer. He's using a rhetorical technique to say, and this was a debate throughout the entire movie with his compadre, uh, Brad Pitt. This was a theological debate that they had throughout the entire movie. Morgan Freeman, his character kept saying, this world is a mess because of sin and sin And Brad Pitt was in the camp of everybody's basically good. There's just one or two really bad apples out there. And we just have to find the really bad apples. And and Morgan Freeman is saying, the problem is the world. The problem is the world is corrupt. The problem is the systems of this world are corrupt. And, and, And he's saying, therefore, we need an outside intervention in order to fix all of this. We need a savior. That's essentially what he's saying. And so Jesus... This three paragraphs here, Jesus is now reiterating, even you religious leaders are in on this problem with the world being corrupt. That was, his, that was one of his biggest problems. And the reason is because you're seeking your own glory by teaching under your own authority. That is a problem. Yeah. And then he brings Moses into it. Yeah. So what's Absolutely. the deal with Moses? That, that seems like a non sequitur, right? He's talking about one thing, and then he just starts talking about circumcision. So what was that about?
4: I love that he brings this up.
3: Um, so he he gets he gets pretty
4: deep quick because then he he basically um, insults the Pharisees on the very thing they built their pride on. That's right, which was keeping the law.
3: Keeping the law.
4: And so Jesus basically calls him out and insults them huge. Like this is a huge offense. This is again shocking that he, that they, that this would be an interaction that was had. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So, why would you circumcise a man on the Sabbath? Part of the rule or the law was that once a boy was born, he had to be circumcised on the eighth day. Quick side note, which is really funny. I'm not super funny as it is ironic, but um, I'm like all of my undergrad and my paramedic schooling. I'm very like physiologically minded, and I think about things. Um, as far as, like, the engineering goes, but for the body a lot.
3: Where is this going?
4: <laughs> and so, Go <laughs> so um, circumcising on the eighth day, you would, if you're cutting your body, you're going to expose yourself to germs. But what's funny is on the eighth day, an infant's uh, immune system, a newborn's immune system spikes.
3: Oh, wow. And after that. that eighth okay.
4: day, it actually drops again. So God has prescribed to them. And so for them to keep this part of the law, they have to circumcise some babies
3: on the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath is every seven days, do the math. Some babies have to be circumcised on the Sabbath, which is actually a work. You're working on the Sabbath, but yeah. why would they do it if why is, it's a work? Why is that okay? But yeah, when Jesus
4: heals somebody, and it's also kind of a weird connection that Jesus makes between mm. circumcising someone and healing someone. Circumcising hurts. Mm-hmm. So, like, why would that why would that connect? Um, and I think it's interesting. There's a setting thing here that sometimes has to be unpacked for us to understand the context of what's being said. Like, you love to say, location, location, location. Yeah. But when you're reading God's word, context context, 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 context. One of the things that's going on here is that... <clears throat> For a, man, for a boy to receive circumcision makes him whole under the law of the old covenant, under Abraham. So what made him a part of the people of the Jewish lineage, made him a part of his people, able to participate in the covenant by going and worshiping in the temple, is that he had to be, have the sign on him being a circumcised male.
3: In a sense, it makes you clean to enter the temple. It makes you ceremonially clean yes. so that you can be a part of it.
4: Well, if you are somehow marred or paralyzed or something, you were considered ceremonially unclean.
3: So the man lame at the pool could never go into the temple.
4: He couldn't go and worship. He couldn't participate in this old covenant. But just like Jesus does, man, he fulfills stuff. And I love this about um, how Jesus kind of uses this not, not just to be about this man who gets to now be a part of his people. But Jesus is also kind of prophesying a bit here in this, experience, in this uh, interaction that this is how Jesus works. The, under the old covenant, without, without the saving blood of Jesus, it requires the ceremonial cleanliness, cleaning yourself to interact with God, to go to the temple, to be, have a place among your people. But Jesus, under the covenant of Jesus, the new covenant, Jesus' blood, he makes you whole. Regardless of if you're ceremonially clean or not, He makes you ceremonially clean under His blood, and gives you a place among His family, in Your people of God's church. So God, uses, so Jesus is using this opportunity to say, "Hey, under the new covenant, this is what I do. Okay, I don't just require things of you. Hey, do better. But under under, if you come to Me and drink this living water, and you you look at Me as and eat My flesh and drink My blood." If you identify yourself with me, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, then Jesus gives you a place among his people, makes you ceremonially clean. This is like uh, almost as if this theme just never stops, that Jesus so, makes it, he fulfills the old law.
3: So, so clean and whole are like synonyms. Here. Yes. So he's saying, look, you're making your babies whole on the Sabbath. Why can't I make this man whole on the Sabbath so that he can, he yeah. can be a part of God's people again? I would argue, oh wow, we need to stop in like a minute. Okay. Uh, I would argue that, and it's hard to see just with a cursory reading, but verses 19 through 24 is one of the strongest gospel presentations in the entire book of John. Because in fact, Jesus is saying, I am the new covenant. I make people whole. I make people clean before God. If you want to be clean, if you want to be righteous, if you want to be uh, acceptable, if you want to be reconciled to God, just come to me. There's no law to fulfill. I'm fulfilling the law. There's, there's no blood to shed anymore. I am going to shed my blood. If you want to be with God, just come to me. That's it. Yeah. That's the gospel message. And this is
4: the theme he continues to do in John 7, and he continues to do throughout oh, John, yes. is that he's fulfilling... All of these things they do from the Old Testament.
3: He fulfills the law, so come to me. And, and so Jesus says, look, our eyes are too much on the approval or the disapproval of man. Yeah. You need to come to me. That's the gospel message.
4: Yeah. I mean, and you just summed it up in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Yeah. That right judgment is not looking on the appearances with your eyes, but looking of the things of the heart.
3: And and those professional religious people were all about appearances. Oh, man.
4: Whitewashed tombs. And I feel like this has to be... So A.W. Tozer said, faith is a heart's gaze at a saving God. Faith is a heart's gaze at a saving God. And for this verse to come up and say, well, you're looking with your eyes and you're not looking with your heart, I think perfectly prescribes the fix for that problem that all of us do have, which is that battle between faith and pride. And you and you, can't, you can't feed both of them at the same time. That's it's awesome. either faith or pride. And the fix is not to just do better or have great, you know, I'm going to exalt God, you know, but it's just going to come out of a heart of I really trying to make me look good. But it actually not about doing better because that was attacked to the Pharisees. Just do better. And that lead, led them to death. But the fix is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Yes. A heart's gaze at Christ. That's right.
3: Let me pray, and we're going to go into our last song and communion, Lord God. We thank you for uh, the way you wove this narrative together with Jesus and with John and with his brothers and with uh, the people at the feast. We thank you that it is instructive for us today. But more than that, it also just, again, reiterates that we need to be pointed to you and we need to believe in you. God, fill us with your Holy Spirit that our hearts might be gazing at you in belief. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to, again, we're having our time of reflection and response. We're going to take communion together. Again, let me remind you that we will have people in the, in the wings to pray if you have uh, any, anything to pray about. Um, if you have your communion kit, uh, great if not. Uh, now would be a great time to go out into the lobby and, and grab your communion kit. If you're joining us on, on YouTube, I hope you have your elements ready. If not, you can pause this and, and uh, uh, get your elements ready. Uh, this is one of the things that we're moving toward is, is Jesus becoming the sacrificial lamb and us coming to his table to remember that and exalt that. Uh, his, his body broken for us, the bread and His blood poured out in this new covenant that we looked at today, this new covenant being poured out for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. So when we eat this bread and we uh, drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So let's do that now.
1: Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain, it's built.
3: for being here with us and worshiping uh this morning Uh, let this be our prayer and our blessing as we go today and now may the lord bless you and keep you may the lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you may the lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forever amen go and live all of life all for jesus we'll see you next week